0: I invite you to turn with me in the Scriptures to John, the Gospel of John chapter 19. The Gospel of John chapter 19, and I want to read the verses 17 through to the end of verse 30. John chapter uh, 19 beginning to read at verse 17 and here we hear God's word as follows and he Jesus then and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side and Jesus in the center now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece, and they said, Therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And our text this morning is verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. About six o'clock in the morning, Pilate sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. And at the time of our text, nine hours had passed since Jesus had been led out of Pilate's judgment hall. Nine hours of carrying his cross, nine hours of suffering, nine hours of pain, nine hours without a crust of bread or a drop of water. And then from his lips suddenly was heard, The words, I thirst. And at first glance, that statement may seem to be the most easily understood of all the words uttered by our Lord from the cross. A superficial reading would cause us to conclude that these same words would probably have been cried out by any man under similar circumstances. These two words seem to be almost a sharp contrast between all of the other words we've heard him utter in his greatest need. All of the other sayings of Jesus, which we heard from him while he hunger on the cross of Golgotha's hill, all of those sayings, <clears throat> as we have learned, they were deeply impregnated with great scriptural truths and doctrine. But I thirst. What can we say of that? What can we do with that? What must we make of that? And when we heard the prayer of Christ, Father, forgive them our reaction is that no other man could have uttered these words any other man would probably have cursed those who brought about his death and rather than offering a prayer and, and uh, rather than offering that prayer on their behalf and and then when we heard him say to the penitent thief today you shall be with me in paradise we sense immediately that it could only have been the eternal natural divine son of god that could have spoken those words. After all, no one or who but the Son of God could pronounce judgment on a soul, admitting it into heaven. And when we saw him looking down from the cross upon Mary and John and saying, Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother, then we were still amazed at this amazing Christ, that he still exhibits amazing love and concern for his earthly mother, even as he endured the excruciating anguish on the cross. And then we heard his cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we know that only the sinless Savior could have uttered those words. Only the one who himself was without sin would have the right to question God for his rejection. And all of that we've come to know and understand and has been explained to us. But by contrast, now these words seem to be so thoroughly human so simple, so uncomplicated, that we hardly feel they need any explanation. In fact, one of the commentaries on my library shelf even suggested that there would not be enough meat in these words to formulate an actual sermon, and I confess that initially that was also my inclination. And indeed, a superficial reading would draw us to simply conclude that, like any other man, under similar circumstances, it would be reasonable that a condemned man suffering as he did would suffer thirst. And without taking into account who and what he was here on the cross, the cry of thirst would seem quite plausible. However, such a humanistic view does not take into account that it was the God-man who hung there on that cross. Listen with me to his words earlier. I lay down my own life that I may take it up again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And people thought only God could have spoken such words. Who but God has the power and the authority to lay down and take up again his own life. But you see, that's now Precisely what poses our problem here in trying to interpret the text. To interpret the words, I thirst. Why would he, the God man, being God, why would he thirst? Even upon that cross, God does not suffer thirst. Why then these words from Jesus? We want to consider. And, and, and interpret and answer those questions as we listen to the word of God this morning, using as my theme the simple words, I thirst. We want to see, first of all, in these words, Christ's further humiliation as a man. Then we want to see also in these same words, Christ's absolute commitment to the scriptures. And then finally, we will learn that these words were a cry of vindication. So I thirst. Christ's further humiliation as a man. His absolute commitment to scripture. And his cry of vindication. People of God step by step. We have followed the crucifixion account. Over the past number of weeks. Jesus hangs on a cross. He suffered the agonies of hell. We were reminded that of him. It was written. All things all things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, the one hanging there on the cross was the same one who had made the firmament of the creation. He had, he had laid the earth's foundations. He had divided the waters under the firmament from the water above the firmament. He had the power to create all things. He is the one who gathered all the water together and separated it from the dry land. And later, during his earthly ministry, he turned water into wine. He multiplied five little loaves and two small fishes until it was sufficient to feed 5,000 people and still have 12 baskets of fragments remaining. Does it not seem strange to you then that this man should cry out, I thirst? Nothing was beyond his control. How now must we interpret this incident? And the Apostle Paul begins to answer the question for us when we read in Philippians 2 verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And once again we need to see that the Lord Jesus Christ was very God of very God, but he was also very man of very man. While there are many things about the Christ that we cannot understand, much less explain, yet this much must be known and believed by us. He was fully human and at the same time fully divine. And those two natures of Christ were perfectly harmonized into the one person. He was not a divine man. Nor was he a humanized God, if I may say it that way. No, when Christ was laid in that manger, he did not cease to be what he was. He was and he remained God. But he became what he was not. He was not a man. He now became a man in that manger. Oh, indeed, when he came on earth to be born as a man, he did strip himself of that former glory that he had with his Father in heaven, but in his incarnation, We read, the word became, the word with a capital then, became flesh and dwelled among us. And while here on this earth, the Lord gave full proof of his divinity, there was no doubt that he was who he said he was. He said he was and he was the son of God. We read that he spoke with divine wisdom. He acted in divine holiness. He exhibited divine power. He displayed divine love. He read men's minds, he moved men's hearts, and he changed men's wills. And all of nature was subjected to his divine authority. A word from him, and diseases fled. Storms were stilled, crippled were made to leap for joy. The devil fled, the dead were raised to life. Surely this was the Son of God. But at the same time, while being God, he was also fully human, <clears throat> While he lived among us on this earth, his perfect humanity was also clearly given us to see. We read he entered this world as a babe, was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And as a child, we read he increased in wisdom. As a boy, we find him asking questions. And as a man, we read he suffered from fatigue. He hungered, he slept, he marveled, he wept. He prayed. He rejoiced. He groaned. And here in our text, as a man, he cried out, I thirst. Once again, he evidences here his humanity. God does not thirst. The angels do not thirst. We ourselves in glory will not thirst. But we thirst now because we are humans and we live in a world of sorrow. Jesus having taken upon himself flesh and blood from the woman, became like unto us his brothers in all things and accepted. And therefore we hear him on that cross as a man crying out, I thirst. And people of God, we may rest assured that there is no other reason either in heaven or on earth that our Lord should suffer the pangs of thirst even upon the cross, except that having humbled himself unto death, Jesus, obedient unto death, on that cross hung there as a man in your place and mine, in your stead and mine. A mere word from his lips, a simple nod of his head would have brought legions of angels to minister to him. Remember his temptations in the wilderness. Forty days, forty nights he went without food. And when Satan left him, we read, behold, angels came and ministered to him. For forty days the angels waited in the wings, waiting for him to call. Our Lord was well aware of the proximity of those angels. He was also well aware of his own lordship over nature as God. Did we not hear him say to Peter in the garden that he could pray to the Father and that he would receive more than 12 legions of angels? We begin to see it now we read. Jesus humbled himself, obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Man had sinned. Man must die. And Jesus here hangs on that cross Suffering as a man in order to make atonement for man and as a man he suffered and therefore we hear I thirst but, but, but having seen that the words of Jesus demonstrate for us that he was obedient as a man obedient unto the very end obedient to death and the cross these words also show us another great truth A second lesson here concerns Jesus' attitudes towards the scriptures and his conscious attempt to fulfill them. Follow this with me for a moment. We know from the Gospels and even from various Old Testament passages that many significant details of our Lord's death were clearly prophesied. And when those things prophesied centuries earlier, Actually happened in the way that it was predicted and prophesied, then all of the world must stand in amazement when it is seen that all things happen precisely as the Lord God had determined things and events had been that had taken that had been predicted and prophesied hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years earlier when they happened. As prophesied in Scripture, would that not be a powerful testimony to the truth, the reliability of God's word? In fact, would it not authenticate God's word as being God's word? And that's now what is clearly seen here. Jesus, in his last words on the cross, takes one more opportunity to verify Scripture. People to understand this with me. Every important detail of this great tragedy of the crucifix, of the crucifixion, had been written down beforehand. For instance, Psalm 41.9. We're told that he would be betrayed by a familiar friend. And centuries later, we saw Judas, one of the twelve, dipping his hand with Jesus at the table. Psalm 31.11, it's predicted that the disciples will all be offended him and will all forsake him. And at Golgotha we see only John and we see him only after he conscience burdened had returned because he along with all the others had run in terror as predicted. In Psalm 35.11 we read that he would be falsely accused and we know the story. we know the story Pilate finds no fault in him and yet to appease the jeering crowd he sentences him to death Isaiah fifty three seven. it is predicted that he would be sent silent before his accusers and centuries later it is written that though he was accused, whipped, scourged and beaten he opened not his mouth Isaiah 53.12 it is foretold that he would be numbered among the transgressors and now we have seen him hanging between two common criminals, the transgressors Psalm twenty-two sixteen 16 predicts that he will be crucified. and That now too is a fact of history. Psalm 109, 25 predicts that he will be taunted by the spectators. Did we not read? Did we not hear? Hey, if you really are the Messiah, come on down from that cross and prove yourself. Did we not hear them? Leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Psalm 22:18 foretells that they will gamble for his garments. We have seen, we have since seen the soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for his tunic. In Isaiah 53:12, it is predicted that he would offer a prayer for his enemies. We've been privileged to hear that prayer: "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." In Psalm 22:1, 1, it is prophesied that he would be forsaken by the Father. Who of us can ever remember that agonizing cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 69, 21 tells us that he would yield his spirit into the hands of his Father. And Lord willing, we will hear of that next week. Psalm 34, 20 tells us that not a bone in his body would be broken. The Roman soldiers broke the legs of, his, of the criminals, but not with Jesus. His side was pierced, but no bones were broken. Isaiah fifty-three nine prophesied that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. We all know from the narrative of Joseph of Arimathea, claiming Christ's body, burying it in his own tomb. People, God, see with me once the complete reliability of Scripture, of God's Word all of these things were plainly foretold centuries before they happened. And piece by piece, bit by bit, one after another, in amazement we have seen them all take place to the minutest detail, exactly as had been prophesied. But, 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 there was still one more prophecy that had yet to be fulfilled before Christ could die on that cross. Psalm 69, 21, we read, and they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And so we read in our text, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things have been accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. But notice with me for a moment that this particular incident, when we compare it with all of the other prophecies, then this one has a very unique character. You see, the Lord had nothing to do with some of these fulfilled prophecies. They simply fell out as God had ordained it. The false accusations, the verdict, the crucifixion among thieves, the casting of lots for his clothes, the piercing of his side rather than the breaking of his bones. All of it came true, but in all of these things Jesus was simply passive. He was not an active participant. His silence before his judges, his praying for forgiveness, his yielding of his spirit to the Father in fulfilling those prophecies, Jesus was active. In these incidents Jesus chose to remain silent, Jesus chose to pray, and Jesus himself determined he would he would commend his spirit his spirit into the hands of God. But 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 here now In the fulfillment of this prophecy, it was different. We read in our text that Jesus cried out, I thirst in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. You see, it would almost seem that Jesus in his mind was searching to see if all things in the scriptures had come to pass. It's as if he determined to see if all things prophesied about him had been accomplished. It's as if in his mind he goes through the scriptures to see if all things had been fulfilled. And when he comes to Psalm 69, he remembers that it reads, They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And that one prophecy had not yet been fulfilled. And so Jesus cried, I thirst. It was the last prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And so we read, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he cried, I thirst. Then, and only then, we read, therefore, when he had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And Lord willing, we will still hear of that. But he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. The scriptures had been fulfilled, all had been accomplished. Exactly as it had been prophesied. And then he said, It is finished. People got to try to capture this with me for a moment. The scriptures teach us that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus had a real concern for the fulfillment of all the biblical predictions about him. His basic motivation here is that the the truth of all of the Bible shall be revealed. His chief concern is obedience to the will of God. Why? People thought that was the very challenge of the hour here, wasn't it? It It was the point at issue here between God and the devil. Remember with me now the very charge against him that brought him to the cross centered around his claims about himself. The world denied that he taught and kept the things of God. That's why they crucified him. They said he was an imposter. He was counterfeit. Go back again with me to paradise. God said if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. But immediately Satan seduces the woman and says, don't you believe it. That's not what God said. And people got ever since that day in the garden, men and women have joined with Satan to deny the word of God and to find fault with it. And now here on Golgotha, the word of Christ left no doubt about the truth of God's word in all of his life even in his death the only thing on the mind of Christ was to maintain the will and the word of his father God if only one little word of scripture could be proven to be untrue about him then all of God's word was held up for ridicule and count as counterfeit and then the Christ would have been an imposter God had said through the psalmist that Christ would thirst on the cross The Bible said he would thirst and to confirm the scripture, to fulfill the prophecy, to authenticate the scriptures and himself, Jesus consciously fulfills the Old Testament prophecy, I thirst. There is still one other element that needs to be captured by us here. Jesus himself had earlier taught in the parable of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus that men and women caught up in the judgment of God in hell would cry out for relief, but they would find none. You remember this story. The rich man died, went to hell and looked up and saw the beggar Lazarus gathered in the bosom of Abraham, suffering the horrible torments of hell. He cries out and pleads that someone might touch his scorched tongue with a drop of water. It is denied him. There was no answer to his cry for relief. Oh, indeed, it was a parable, a figure of speech, if you will. But in hell, men do suffer divine judgment. And part of that judgment is to suffer divine denial. It is then too late. God will no longer hear For God is not there. And Jesus suffered the torments and the agonies of hell. He had been abandoned by God. He had suffered the hell of God-forsakenness. But see with me now. He cries out for cooling refreshment for his parched mouth. And there is answer. They gave him vinegar to drink. And what needs to be understood in that now is that Christ suffers the torments of hell no longer. Why not? Because the scriptures have been fulfilled and there is now for him relief. Oh, indeed, he has not yet risen victorious over, over the grave. That was still to come, but he had conquered hell. Now he once again was allowed to see the Father's smiling countenance. He may now eat and drink, Scriptures had been fulfilled. The judgment is over. Oh, now all of this takes on a new and a precious meaning for you and I. Jesus thirsted in order that the message and the invitation of love found in the word of God may be gloriously proclaimed in his name. He is already perfect as a man And he's revealed to us as the perfect, complete, and compassionate Savior. He had experienced suffering. And and he now approaches sinners as the one who understands what suffering really is. And that human suffering included thirst. Listen now with with me to his invitation, Isaiah 55. Ho to everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters without money. Buy, eat, buy wine and milk without money, without price and whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. My dear precious saints of God gathered with me here in Salem this morning. In all of the scriptures there are only to be found two references to the thirst of Jesus here on the cross is one the other incident is with Jesus and the woman at the well of Samaria then two <coughs> he was thirsty he asks for water but he was more concerned with the spiritual need of the woman than he was about his own thirst as they begin their conversation they both become involved in the discussion that the thirst of Jesus was completely forgotten you know the story He asks her for a drink, and they begin to talk. He tells her to go and get her husband. She says, I have no husband. And he replies, you have five husbands, and the one you are living with now is not your husband. Her mouth falls open in amazement. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she runs into town to tell what she has heard and seen. We do not read that he ever that he ever quenched his physical thirst that day, but what we are given to see there though is that the new-found faith of that Samaritan woman quenched the thirst of Jesus that was his mission on earth in both incidents here in the cross and there in Samaria. we are privileged to see that even greater than his desire to quench his own thirst was Jesus' all-consuming desire. To quench the spiritual thirst for all of those for whom he came to suffer and die. People have got looking at that cross now. Men and women everywhere, including you and I here this morning. We can rest assured that Jesus understands all of our needs. He thirsted as no man has ever thirsted, and that He has come into the world to quench the thirsty souls of thirsty men and women. Our minds are so slow to understand, our hearts are so slow to believe, and therefore we've heard the gospel here again at the cross. In the book of Revelation, heaven is pictured as the place where men and women will never thirst again. We read further that the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." Let him that is thirsty come and drink. And whosoever will, let him come and take of the water freely. Oh, my dear precious saints of God, gathered here in Bowmanville with me this morning, if you remember nothing else of all that God has said to you this morning, remember and believe and take at least this much home with you. Through the cross of the Christ of Golgotha, there was open for all who would believe on the Lord a fountain of grace. A stream of mercy, a river of salvation, and an ocean of God's love. Why then shall we return to broken cisterns and stagnant waters to live apart from God is death? but the river of grace flows freely and all who believe shall be saved and all who drink of the well of living water shall be eternally refreshed. There shall then be opened within the hearts streams of living waters that will become channels of the Savior's mercy. People got, in a sense, in a very real sense, Christ still thirsts. He thirsts for the love and the devotion of his people. That's the message of the church. It is the stirring message of God to the church. I recently read of a missionary in New Mexico who had instructed that on his gravestone would be simply inscribed the words, the Savior, the Savior bids you come to him. And that invitation has gone out and is still going out from thousands of faithful pulpits around the world on this very day. And that same gracious invitation has been issued from this pulpit this morning. Through the preaching of the cross, millions and millions, billions, have continued to be drawn to that cross. We read that a throng, which no one can number, shall be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Sinners shall come and be justified. Saints shall come and be sanctified. The invitation is now to all. Come, come to the Savior now. He gently calleth thee. Come, come and drink. Drink deeply from that well of living waters. Come to him and live. May it be that each of us would come to him and drink in order that we would never thirst again. Shall we?